0: Well, By show of hands, I wonder, how many of you are familiar with the Nigerian Prince scam? Anyone? All right, I trust then those who didn't raise their hand are either too shy or don't know about it, but uh, let me describe what it is. It's a, it's a scam that usually gets sent to its victims by way of email, and the emails go something like this. I'm just reading one I found online. Dear Sir, I am a Prince from Nigeria, and your help would be very appreciated. I want to transfer all of my fortune outside of Nigeria due to a frozen account. If you would be so kind and transfer me the small sum of 3,500 US dollars to my account, I would be able to unfreeze my account and transfer the money outside of Nigeria. To repay your kindness, I will send 1 million US dollars to your account. Please contact me to proceed." Sounds like a great deal. But it sounds a bit fishy to me, and I hope you would be able to spot the same deceit in an email like that if it shows up in your inbox. You see, the Nigerian Prince scam, as it's, been, as it's come to be known as, has been going on for some time now, and I, I trust that many of us are familiar with it. Though, I wonder how many of you know that this scam isn't new at all. This scam, though it's changed over the years, is traced back to, to 1910 before emails were even invented, before the internet was even in operation, way before people would communicate via the web, there was a similar scam going on, but it was by way of snail mail. This is an old scam. And it seems, though good, it seems obvious that it's a scam, and yet the amazing thing about it is is it continues to work According to one source, the Nigerian Prince email scam brought in over $700,000 back in 2019. So perhaps one lesson we might learn from this is that some promises are simply too good to be true. But what of the gospel? The gospel, too, offers us good news. In fact, it is far greater news than All the wealth that the world has to offer better than the wealth that any supposed Nigerian prince can can promise you. The gospel offers us a great salvation to every single person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. This great salvation includes an escape from the wrath of God and eternal life there in the presence of God. The gospel offers us good news of great salvation, but as the gospel Reliable news. That's the question I want us to consider this morning. But let's remember where we're at here in the letter to the Hebrews. Back in chapter 1, the author has demonstrated that Jesus holds a great status that is far higher than that of the angels. So in conclusion to this, Tate preached last week on chapter 2, verses 1 through 3a. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proves to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Last week, Tate introduced us to the first of many warning passages that we see contained here in Hebrews. As Tate showed us, this warning takes effect by comparing the message that was declared by the angels to that of the message that was declared by Jesus. There are differences to this message, to be sure, as we've already noted many times the angels have a low status in comparison to that of King Jesus and more than that the angels also brought the law while Jesus Christ brought the good news of great salvation these are the differences at least a few of the differences between the message declared by the angels and the message declared by Jesus Christ but there's also something similar for us to compare this morning the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable he says And every transgression or disobedience to their message received a just retribution. So the warning comes to us by way of comparison this morning, as Tate taught us last week, from the lesser to the greater. If the message declared by the angels was reliable, and those who neglected it suffered from it, how shall we escape then if we neglect this great salvation that has been declared to us by Jesus Christ? That's the question that's held out to us this morning. But the question only works if the message of the gospel proves to be as reliable as the message as the one that the angels declared to us. But the original readers of this letter, as well as some here this morning, might be wondering if the gospel is in fact reliable, one that's trustworthy. For the original audience, they might be asking questions like this. After they've left left their family because of the gospel and after many of them have lost their homes and after many of them were threatened even perhaps to even lose their life for Christ, they might be wondering, is he really gonna save me? Or is the gospel the greatest fraud of all time? To answer this question, let's look at our text. Starting in verse 3b, referring back to the great salvation, he says this, it was declared at first by the Lord, And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Our text this morning gives us three reasons for why this great salvation is a salvation, a message that we can bank our lives on. So let's take them one at a time, starting there in the first line. First, this great salvation was declared to us at first by the Lord. Jesus Christ is the one who announces this great gospel to us. Before the apostles ever started preaching, Jesus came into the scene as a preacher. Listen to this purpose statement that Jesus gave us for why he came into the world. Luke four forty three, He said this, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well for i was sent for this purpose and he was preaching in the synagogues of judea the message that jesus proclaimed is very different from the unreliable emails that any scammer might send you there's at least three differences that i've identified so let's let me walk through them so that we might get a, gr- a clear idea of what it is that jesus announced while scammers would fill your inbox with letters and emails, the gospel message came to us by God's Son. The gospel is not a myth or a legend. It's not just a a, a message that's contained in a book, though it is there in our Bibles for us to read and hear and meditate upon. But the gospel came to us in time and space, The gospel is a reality that has really happened. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He lived among real men and women, doing wonders among the people, healing the sick, casting out demons, even raising the dead back to life. And though we don't often talk about it, he came, as our text tells us, as one who came announcing the gospel preaching the word of God with authority, with even greater authority than the most learned teachers in Israel. For he himself was the divine author of all the scriptures. And so many people loved Jesus and followed him. And many more hated him and sought to kill him. Jesus Christ was crucified at the age of 33 outside of Jerusalem. And we know that on the third day, he was raised from the dead. The gospel is a message that we believe in. Yes, it requires faith. But our faith is not without solid facts. The gospel that Jesus announced and accomplished is not just a mere fact. It's not like the other facts that that might fill our our minds. Meaningless facts that, that we don't know what to do with. For example, those who aren't into conspiracy theories... Trusts that the landing on the moon happened in 1969. That's a historical fact. But it's a historical fact that has very little impact on any of our lives today. But unlike the moon landing, the gospel events that took place 2,000 years ago completely change a person's life. Moreover, it offers those who believe in it eternal life. Here's the second difference between scammers and the Son of God. While email scammers write to ask for your help, Jesus Christ came into the world announcing good news, of His help for those who would come to him. We already heard one purpose that Jesus came. He came to preach good news, the good news of the kingdom. But listen to this purpose statement for why Jesus came. Mark 2:17. He says, "Those who are well have no need of a physician." but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is good news, isn't it? Good news for everyone in the room, provided that you see yourself for what you truly are and see Jesus for who he truly is. See yourself for who you truly are. You are a sick sinner in need of Christ's righteousness to cure you from the curse of sin. And so, too, you need to know who Jesus is. He is a great savior, the great physician, the one who has died and rose again so that you might have eternal life. Nigerian prince scammers want something from you. They want your money. And they will try to get your money by lying to you. But the same cannot be said of the Lord Jesus Christ. For one... What do you have that doesn't already belong to him? The Lord says that every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field. They are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and all its fullness are mine, declares the Lord. We need to understand this. Jesus did not come as one who is needy needing anything from you or me. Jesus came, he said, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so when Jesus came into the world, he did not come as one looking to get anything. No, he came as the great giver. So you might ask, what's the catch? There's always a catch. As the old saying goes, nothing is free in life. You always pay in the end. So how does one come by this great salvation that Jesus has to offer? Stop cussing, go to church, read your Bibles, give your money to the poor. How does a person earn the salvation that Jesus Christ has to offer? Answer, you do not earn it. Rather, you receive it as a free gift of grace simply by believing in Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the third difference between the internet scammers and the Lord Jesus Christ. Unlike internet scammers, God does not require anything from you. Salvation is completely free and it is received only by believing in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus announced in John 7. He said, on the last day of the feast, it says that on the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. This water is not for the rich to buy. This water that Jesus has to offer is not for the righteous to try to earn. Rather, it is for anyone who would simply hear the call that Jesus gives and they come to him in faith knowing that he is able to give that which he promised to give. You can't buy it. and You cannot earn it why Isaiah said this, the Lord through Isaiah, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good And delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. This is the great news that our Lord came to announce. Do you hear the voice of Jesus? Do you hear his invitation? If so, then come. Come and drink. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. You might say though, well, wow, that sounds just too good to be true. You're here this morning, perhaps, and you'd like to believe, but your faith is small and struggling. Jesus, he promises to satisfy, but you're still left wanting because you're single. Jesus promises to provide for you, but once again, you're out of work. Jesus promised to protect you, but now you have cancer. Some might hear the good news that Jesus has proclaimed and accuse him of being just like the others. Another liar. Another scam artist. In fact, one might even say that the gospel is the longest running scam. Because Jesus, he promises eternal life to those who believe in him and follow him, but in reality, Christians die just like the rest of mankind. Or even worse, the most. Devoted disciples have often lost their lives precisely because they followed Jesus. And so you might be here a bit skeptical, not quick to believe what you hear. and You might say that you'll only believe it once you see it. You want evidence. Well, the writer gives us more evidence for why this gospel is reliable. Listen to what he says in verse 3b. It was declared at first by the Lord, and here's the second. And it was attested to us by those who heard. I want to point out the pronoun there, us. It's a significant word for us. It's a hint as to who the author of this letter was because the author doesn't appear to be one who actually heard Jesus Christ for himself. He includes himself with the rest of the, the people to whom he's writing to, as those who received the word not directly from Jesus Christ, but he and they, as well as those of us who are here, received it from those who heard. This is one of the data points that suggests that the writer of Hebrews wasn't one of the apostles. The apostles were the eyewitnesses for Jesus' earthly ministry. Even Paul the apostle was a first-hand recipient of the gospel as he accounts in Galatians 1. He says this, this is Paul. Galatians 1:11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now compare that with what we have before us in in Hebrews 2. The writer says that that the gospel was attested to him and the rest of those to whom he writes by those who heard, namely the apostles. So if you want more evidence, you stand with those who this writer is writing to as well as to the writer himself. So this is the second evidence I want us to see this morning. The apostles attested to the gospel that Jesus declared. You know the importance of witnesses, don't you? If you spent any time watching cop shows or murder mysteries, then you know how important witnesses are to putting away the bad guys. And the standard stands the same in the scriptures as well. Listen to this Old Testament law found in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall the charge be established. Now we know that Jesus never committed any crime. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. But even still, our Lord did not leave without first leaving many witnesses who attested to the reliability of the gospel that he declared. In fact, our entire New Testament functions as a witness of sorts to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let us consider for a moment the four Gospels that we have. Reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, is like hearing from four different witnesses who all attest to the the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Each author has a, a unique style of writing if you come to get to know them. Each one of them is writing from a different perspective, Each one writes with a distinct purpose from the other, but each and every one of them shares the same testimony about the person and work of Jesus Christ, that he came from heaven as the Son of God, and he lived a sinless life, though he was tempted like you and me. And he died on the cross, and he rose again on the third day. All four witnesses there that wrote the gospel attest to the very same thing. Let's consider for a moment, though, the gospel of Luke. Luke's perspective of the gospel is a bit different from the others and that Luke himself wasn't an actual eyewitness. Rather, Luke functions as a historian who gathers reports from various eyewitnesses and having done so, he compiles all these accounts together so that we might have an orderly account of all that Jesus said and did. Listen to how Luke introduces his gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you might have certainty. That's what we're looking for this morning, isn't it? That you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught Luke's account comes from multiple eyewitnesses and he compiles this so that one named Theophilus might have certainty about the reliability of the gospel that he has already received. But Luke wasn't done writing when he finished his gospel. We know that Luke also wrote the book of Acts and the book of Acts opens in a a striking way as well. Listen to Acts 1, 1 through 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given the commandments through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He had presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs. Again, there's the evidence. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so when you read through the gospel accounts, we're, we're reading the very history of what happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked on the earth. Now, there's a few details I want to I draw out from Luke's writings, both in the gospel of Luke and Acts, that I think are striking for us to consider this morning. Consider two people in particular. First, the apostle Peter. Throughout the gospel accounts, Peter is presented as a man with many weaknesses And in Luke 22, you can read of what is arguably the lowest point in Peter's life, his threefold denial of Jesus Christ. But by the time you get to the book of Acts, the apostle Peter is a transformed man. Though we hear of him being persecuted, threatened, and imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, Peter shows no signs of letting up in his proclamation of the truth. And here's what changed Peter. From his own mouth, when he was being warned about speaking in the name of Jesus, Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter, the scaredy cat there at Jesus' own trial, became one who was as bold as a lion. Why? Because of what he had seen and heard from the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just Peter who completely changes after encountering the risen Lord. Perhaps even more remarkable than Peter's transformation is the change that we see happen in the life of the apostle Paul. When we first meet Paul... Saul is how we're introduced to him. Paul was zealously persecuting the church. But then he met the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And the Pharisee who once persecuted Christ became the apostle who would ultimately die for the sake of Christ. But we have far more than just the four gospels and acts to rely on in order to receive the testimony that the apostles gave. We have the writings of the apostles themselves, as they attested to all that they had seen and heard. Listen to how Paul talks about the gospel in his own writing now. First Corinthians fifteen, three and eight. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. In other words, Paul is saying, you can go talk to those 500 people and ask them about what they saw. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is the testimony that you hear throughout the entirety of the New Testament from all the apostles. That Christ died and rose again. But for us this morning, we still have a disadvantage. You might still be thinking, well, how can this actually be true? Every religion claims to have a truth but we know men to be liars and frauds, looking to get rich at the expense of others. So how can we possibly trust the apostles any more than we can trust any other man? Well, it might help to consider what the apostles had to gain by following Jesus. Did they gain money? No. Power? No. Did they gain anything of worldly value? No. No. They weren't pursuing anything in the world. Rather, the apostles were men who were storing up treasures in heaven because they believed that they would be raised with Jesus Christ. The apostles, though, as far as humanly speaking, the apostles, to normal eyes, were the most pitiable of all people. That's not just my words. That's what Paul said about himself. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, in other words, there's no resurrection from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if the gospel is not true but a fraud, then the apostles were the most miserable people who ever lived. But the gospel is no fraud. The good news of great salvation is reliable news and the apostles knew it for themselves because they saw the risen Jesus with their own eyes and they heard him with their own ears and they walked with the resurrected Jesus and talked with the resurrected Jesus and ate with the resurrected Jesus and touched the resurrected Jesus. The reality of the resurrection led the apostles to live the most radical lives that would cause them to say things like this, Paul in Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that God the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So then, do you rely on the gospel simply because men say it's true? Are we to put all our faith and trust and confidence in the words of these men, most of whom were hardly even educated? Are we left believing something just because the majority say it's true? Absolutely not. If anything, the majority of the world says the opposite. If anything, the majority of those who are wise and strong and powerful have rejected Jesus Christ. Even the Jews who are waiting for their Messiah continue to wait because they have rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So if you're left up to believing something, whether it's true or false, based on whether the majority of people say it is or isn't true, if that's what's going to be the determining factor for you, then you will most certainly wander from the truth that is found in Jesus Christ. Because the majority of people have rejected him. The majority of people mocked him, just as they did when he was being crucified. The majority of the world hates Jesus Christ. And this denial is owing to the fact that there is an older con than any internet con, any internet scandal. The fact that people have doubted Jesus is owing to the fact that the world has bought into the lie that the serpent has been telling from the very beginning. And the sad thing is, people have taken his bait, they have bought into the lie. And so if the the statement of men, their faith or rejection of Jesus Christ is the grounds for truth, then you will most certainly wander from the gospel. But understand this, men do not get the final word. In fact, even in our text before us, the apostles don't even get the final word. Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. This great salvation was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Here's the third point. God authenticated the gospel. We've already established that the apostles were witnesses for Jesus Christ. But have you ever considered the fact that God himself stands as a witness? We see the apostles' witness in Acts 8... Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Yeah, the apostles were witnesses for Jesus Christ, but they did not go alone. God bore witness through them as well. That's why he actually, before he sends them, he says to wait, because they were to receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And only then would they go out into the earth to be his witnesses. You'll receive power, he said, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That word power is the the well-known Greek word dunamis, which is where we get that word dynamite from. The power of God that rested upon the apostles as they preached the gospel. This morning's text has a very similar theme to it. Look at verse 4. God, yeah, the apostles were bearing witness. They were testifying to the truth of the gospel And God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. While these three words are synonymous, each word comes with its own nuance that's worth considering. Consider first the word sign. The word sign in the Greek has a range of meaning that's similar to the range of meaning that it has in the English as well. It can refer to a miracle, but it can also refer to a a token or an indication of something that is yet to come. Listen to how the words were used by the disciples in Matthew 24. The disciples talking to Jesus said, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be, here's the word, what will be the sign, or you might say, the indication of your coming at the end of the age? So you might apply this definition to our text as well. These signs, these these miracles are indicators, pointers, to who Jesus Christ truly is. Consider now the word wonders. Have you ever been filled with wonder? Maybe at seeing the sun rise in the morning or by the explosion of flavor in your mouth when you taste orange juice? This kind of wonder is intended to make you amazed by the goodness of God. But the wonders here described. In Hebrews 2.4, are not the common wonders like a sunrise that still leave us speechless, but are the wonders and miracles that God worked mightily through his apostles and through Jesus Christ that left men speechless and amazed because they could not describe what they had just seen. However, signs and wonders are not unique to the apostles or to Jesus Christ. Matthew 24.24, 24, Jesus said, That false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Like the magicians in Pharaoh's court, these false prophets, these antichrists, will perform great signs and wonders. But these are cheap tricks, only imitations of the true power of God that was demonstrated through the apostles and through Jesus Christ. For in our text, we don't just have signs and wonders, but we have the threefold progression, signs, wonders, and various miracles that God used to bear witness to the trustworthiness of the gospel. And that word miracles here, it's that same Greek word that we saw already in Acts 1, dunamis. These are powers, various powers that worked through God, through Jesus Christ, and through the apostles to demonstrate that the gospel is true. This is how Paul used this as well. The same word, power. Paul, as a preacher, was a weak man and he was not shy about that. He writes much about it in First Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3. He said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The power at work in the apostles was to demonstrate that they spoke not with their own authority, but spoke on behalf of God. God. God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Here he points that these works were done in the apostles because the Spirit of God was the one that was dwelling with them. It was the Spirit of God who gave them this power that was used to authenticate the message that they declared. We know that the Holy Spirit has all kinds of functions in the life of believers. He convicts us of sin, John 16, verse 8. He illuminates God's work, word to us, excuse me, Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. He sanctifies believers, Galatians 5.22. He works in and through the preaching of the word, Acts 4.8. He gives gifts for the building and edification of his church, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 but here the spirit operates in the lives of the apostles so as to bear help them bear witness to the truth of the gospel so that no man might be able to deny what they say but the power of god was not just demonstrated in the book of acts it wasn't just demonstrated through the apostles but most notably the power of god was demonstrated in jesus christ god bore witness to his own son, so that we might know that he is not one of those many antichrists, but he is the Christ, the son of the living God. All the signs and wonders and powers of Jesus are authenticators of who Jesus is. They're the signs that point to who he is. The, they, they are the, the wonders that cause a person to be speechless at, at, at who he is. They are the means by which you see Jesus, who is fully God, operating in the very power of God. He is the Son of God, clothed in flesh. And a few of the disciples even got a glimpse of his glory during the transfiguration. Listen to this passage in Matthew 17:5. His glory was being shining, and the, the apostles, James and John and Peter, they saw it. Peter was speaking and behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and the voice of the cloud said this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him here we see the father himself to the apostles who are going to be the ones to go bear witness the father is the one who authenticated that Jesus Christ is the son of God and in that scene This is only authenticated to just a very few, just the three there, three apostles there, the Mount of Transfiguration. But the Father demonstrated to his Son in the most glorious display that all would see when he raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. So for us this morning, we see that we have a great salvation. But it's not just great news, it's reliable news. The evidence is before every single one of us so that we might pay close attention to what we have seen and heard. So the writer of Hebrews exhorts us, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. You cannot afford to ignore what Jesus Christ has proclaimed. For those who are unbelievers, you need to know that God is not silent. He sent Jesus Christ as a preacher. He sent his apostles to to bear witness to who he is. And he demonstrated that Jesus is God by working powerfully in and through him. This great salvation is a far greater value than all the treasures that fill the earth. What would it profit you if you gained the whole world? And died tonight. But if you have Jesus Christ, death is gain. So you've heard the call of God to believe in him so that you might receive this great salvation. It is a free gift for you to receive if you believe in Jesus Christ. The saying is trustworthy and full of full acceptance, deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom. I, Paul writes, am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. If you're here this morning, believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the same goes for the rest of us as well. Even if you believed in him for all of your life, for most of your life, this call to pay attention it's just as much for us as well. There isn't a single one of us who can afford to not pay close attention to what was declared. The enemy is crafty and he seeks to, to con us out of our salvation. He, he seeks to draw us away from Christ and he will do this by tempting us with a love for the world or perhaps even by sifting you with doubts when, when troubles come your way. But I want you to know this, brothers and sisters. We have a great and reliable gospel. So let us rest in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for all the various ways by which you have shown us your love. But most of all, we thank you for sending your son into the world to die so that we might have life. I do pray that every single one of us would would have a a glimpse of your glory the way the apostles had that glimpse of your glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Lord, would you show us your glory so that we might grow in our love of you and our trust in you. I pray that you would strengthen our faith. And for those who have yet to believe, I do pray that you would grant them faith and repentance even now. Do this work. Work your power amongst us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.